It's recording already? Okay. Uh, this afternoon I'm going to talk to the theme of this day, which is the secular Buddha. Those of you who were here last night would have heard me speak of my understanding of the historical uh, Siddhartha Gautama, who lived about 500 BCE in northern India. And in particular, what I'm interested in in the life is to seek to understand more clearly on the basis of the earliest materials the kind of man he was embedded in his time and place. I don't think we can understand what he, he said or we can't understand everything he said unless we see the social and the moral and the political and I would also say the economic environment in which he lived of which he was a part as much a part of his world as we are of our world I was reading recently um, the latest no uh, not a novel a series of essays by the Czech uh, um, novelist and essayist uh, Milan Kundera it's a book called uh, Le Rideau The Curtain it's just come out in France and he says I think quite tellingly at one point he says most of us have probably at one time or another had the fantasy um, that of having been born somewhere else under different circumstances raised by different parents in a different culture and a different society and although it's a very attractive fantasy a very seductive fantasy that things would be so different for us were our circumstances different it's also highly illusory because it fails to take into account the extent to which the individual person the individual self me is contingent upon the circumstances in which I was born the circumstances under which I grew up, the culture and the religion in which I am embedded. There's no free-floating me or self that could even hypothetically be somehow transferred to somewhere more agreeable to my desires. And in many ways I think that insight is very close to the insight concerning the Buddhist's understanding of self. Self does not exist as some uh, self-existent thing in and of itself, in its own right, detached, separated, monad, apart from the circumstances in which it emerged. And of course this is just as true of the man Siddhartha Gautama. He was a creature in the literal sense of the word, something created by the conditions of his time and his place. And although he was a radical critic of many deeply held views and opinions of that time and place, he was nonetheless also a part of it. He was embedded in it, he was formed by it, he breathed its air, he shared its assumptions in much the way, in the, much the same way, in exactly the same way that we are embedded in our place and in our time. As the myth and the legend of the Buddha have grown, as the Buddha has become less and less a human being in a recognizable human environment and has become elevated to the status almost of a god, then that sense of his embeddedness, the sense of the contingency of his existence in his time and place has been lost. And we have this idea that the Buddha could have been 
transferred to some other situation and he would have said exactly the same thing. In fact, a question that is often hypothetically raised in the sorts of discussions I find myself in from time to time is something like, well, if the Buddha were born today um, in New York, um, would he have said X, would he have said Y, would he have said Z? And again, the question is attractive, but it is spurious because it presupposes that there is some kind of of a self-existent person who's untouched, unaffected by the context out of which his identity and his being have emerged. So when we look into the Buddha's own life, we see both someone who is a uh, representative of that period and at the same time someone who is rebelling against it. And I think it's precisely in that kind of tension that we find inspiration, we find insight, we find a model of a human life that still inspires us two and a half thousand years later. But the difficulty for many of us in this day and age is to be able to accept uncritically um, everything the Buddha said as somehow an expression of his enlightenment, his awakening, and so on. And again, we have to be aware that although later tradition has insisted that the Buddha was omniscient, which is again a very dubious notion in my mind, and thereby somehow detached from time and place, because he kind of knows everything that's ever going to happen, when he himself was asked in the Pali texts, are you omniscient, he would always say no. And when he was asked what he taught, he said, I teach suffering and I teach the ending of suffering. He emphasized uh, constantly throughout his life the pragmatic and therapeutic dimension of his teaching, preferring to see himself less as a kind of, um, of teacher and more as some kind of healer. He refers to himself as a, a physician. He refers to his Dhamma as a process of medication, a course of treatment. And he refers to his community as the collection of those men and women who support each other in the application of that treatment. But at the same time, he also spoke very much in the language of his time. He seemed quite clearly to take as for granted the existence of past and future lifetimes, going back to an almost beginningless past, extending to a hypothetically endless future from which the human being sought to escape through liberating him or herself from this repetitive and ultimately uh, meaningless cycle of birth and death. Now, this was an idea that was already around at the Buddha's time. You find it first developed in India in the Upanishadic literature where the, the soteriology um, of classical India was more or less established. Now, by soteriology is a fancy word for the way we think about getting free, the way we think about soter, salvation, liberation. And the classical Indian model saw the human dilemma as one in which we are caught in a cycle of birth and death driven by previous actions, karma, which extend back to some beginningless past and find ourselves endlessly hurled without choice from one birth to the next. And the aim of a, a spiritual or religious teacher in that context was to find a way to free us from the nightmare of repetition. And again, we can interpret that you know, literally, 
or we can look at that as a psychological metaphor. But in, in either case, the point is to break free of cycles in which we are caught and do not seem to be able to free ourselves. So this is another way of looking at what I spoke of this morning as uh, the stream or the flood that keeps propelling us to think a certain way, to say certain things, to do certain things, to just keep on going round and round in the same patterns, the same kinds of habits that we're so deeply familiar with. So the Buddha's concept of liberation differs from those of his contemporaries in India purely really in terms of strategy, in other words, what you should do, and also in terms of insight, in other words, what understandings will free you from this cycle, this pattern of rebirth, of continuity, in a pointless and cyclical way. Now what is radical about the Buddha's teaching is that unlike other Indian schools of thought, he doesn't see this process as one that entails the freeing of a self or a soul, an Atman, from this process, but rather sees the cause of the problem being the belief in such a self or a soul or an Atman. In other words, just as I was saying earlier, this, this, he, he, he criticized one of the deepest, most instinctive feelings that we have, namely that there's something deep within us that is fixed and unchanging, that is not contingent on conditions, that is self-existent, and that is, as it were, a spark of the divine, which in non-Buddhist Indian thought is liberated from the cycle of birth and death to be reunited with God or the Brahman or the Paramatman which is as it were the, uh, the transcendental divine reality from which the soul or the self has become uh, alienated and incarcerated in a body. So the Buddha's view of the world differs radically from his uh, contemporaries in such a way that uh, must have been very shocking for those people at that time. But nonetheless, what would have seemed for many of his contemporaries to be a necessary um, view in order to believe in rebirth, i.e. the fact there is some part of ourselves that is pure and divine and, and uh, has some personal identity, um, that that very thing is seen through by the Buddha, is seen to be a fiction, and therefore can no longer provide a base for what it is that is then reborn. So, on the one hand, the Buddha is following this particular line of thought and inquiry, but on the other hand, he speaks continuously and often in considerable detail about how we have experienced former births, how through the force of our actions we will be thrown into later births, and so forth and so on. In other words, he, he critiques certain key elements of his contemporary worldview, but he leaves others untouched. What the Buddha didn't do, and what you will find no hint of whatsoever in the Pali texts, is explain how or what it is that gets reborn. In fact, he went out of his way to stress that that question was one that was not conducive to the path he taught. You're no doubt familiar with the series of questions that the Buddha refused to answer. Does the world have a beginning? Does it have an end? Is the universe finite? Is the universe infinite? 
Are body and mind the same or different? He wouldn't go there. But the problem is that if you don't go there and you've discarded the notion of self and yet you still speak of rebirth, you have a problem. In other words, explaining particularly to those who are not Buddhists and even amongst Buddhists themselves how it is that such a selfless organism continues from one life to the next in some way or some bit of it. Now, although the Buddha made it quite clear that to inquire into the relation between body and mind, same or different, was not um, something worth pursuing, that did not prevent um, centuries of discussion and uh, debate as to precisely what is the relation between body and mind. And so every Buddhist school has come up with a different theory to explain what it is that gets reborn. Most of them posit some kind of subtle consciousness. In other words, some bit of mind, whether it's the mental consciousness or something more esoteric, that has the capacity to survive the breakdown of the physical body and then move on through time and space into a fertilized um, ovum or something like that. There are various theories as to what, how birth happened too. So you find Buddhism having to somehow part company with one of the Buddha's own injunctions in order to be able to offer a coherent and consistent view of its understanding of the world, particularly in India, but one that I've always felt very uncomfortable with. I have a sense that these attempts at um, explaining this process lead you into greater problems than you initially had the primary problem being that of, 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 of dualism. Um, and this, of course, is from the very people who brought you non-duality. <laughs> you have an almost unavoidable um, move towards a world that is composed of, of physical elements and, at the same time, non-physical elements that are conscious, that are clear and knowing, as the Tibetans say, but are not in any sense physical. They can't be seen, they can't be heard, they can't be smelt, they can't be tasted, and they can't be touched, which is crucial. Because if, they, if the mind cannot be touched, if there's no point of contact possible with it, how does it thereby enter into any meaningful rapport or relationship, say, with a neuron or a brain or a nervous system if there's no point of contact possible, if there's no physicality there's no purchase that can be gained on it by anything physical. To me that has been an insuperable problem. So philosophically I really cannot accept that view of the world. Now the Buddha did on one occasion at least offer the a suggestion that it wasn't actually necessary to believe in rebirth or karma. And this occurs in the notorious Kalama Sutta, inevitably, where the Buddha is an extraordinary text, I'm not going to go into that now, it'll be a bit of a diversion, but towards the end of that, of that discourse, he says, even if there is no hereafter, even if there is no law of moral cause and effect, the practice of the Dhamma would still be the most essential and the most worthwhile thing to do. The reason being because it would diminish greed, it would diminish hatred, it would diminish confusion, and it would lead you to love and compassion and equanimity and joy and wisdom. 
But of course, this is a very exceptional passage. It's not mainstream Buddhism, not even mainstream Pali canon, for that matter, where there's much more evidence to argue that, in fact, he did believe that something went on into a future life. But when we come to this sort of question today, um, we also run into problems with the consistency of such a view with the way we understand the world nowadays. In other words, the world view in which we are embedded, whether we like it or not, much in the same way as the Buddha was embedded in his. I again find it very hard to square the notion of rebirth with the understanding of evolution by natural selection. It seems as though you have to then have two kind of parallel processes. You've got an endlessly reincarnating mind which somehow inhabits these gradually evolving um, organisms of a purely physical nature which are entirely detached from this mental bit which again suffers the um, awkwardness of requiring a dualistic view of the world. When I was a Tibetan Buddhist monk uh, for a number of years uh, in my early 20s I trained to be a, a geshe uh, a sort of doctor of divinity it's the, it's the principal sort of qualification of learning and understanding in the Geluk school of Tibetan Buddhism and I was attracted to that approach because it laid great emphasis on a critical examination of the Buddha's teaching and we were taught to, um, to analyze to study logic and dialectics, epistemology, in order to subject these ideas and doctrines to uh, critical analysis. And, it was promised, we would also be given incontrovertible proofs for reincarnation. Well, when we came to the incontrovertible proofs, they didn't turn out to be very incontrovertible. In fact, they were really rather disappointing. The classical, one of the classical proofs uh, that you find in Dharmakirti um, runs um, the mind of a child that has just been born existed in the past because it is a mind. And they give an example like this mind. Now, I wasn't convinced by that. And, <laughs> and it's not even, um, it doesn't even stand up to um, the, uh, the, lo the, the logical rigor demanded of the Tibetan Buddhist system. It's at those points, though, when you raise them to the teachers that you said, well, this is actually something only really understood by Buddhas, and we have to take this on the basis of scriptural authority. In other words, critical reasoning can take you so far in supporting your faith, your confidence in such teachings, but only so far. At a certain point, you have to discard reason in favor of faith, and I found this very, dis very, very disappointing. Um, I felt I'd somehow been, not exactly cheated, but um, let's say disappointed. That's probably as good a word we can say. But at the same time, um, as a, a monk, um, and I was a very devout monk, believe it or not, I took this all very, very seriously. And I used to sometimes wake up in an agony of indecision in a cold sweat in the middle of the night worrying about such things as is it possible for a material entity to generate causally a mental process? Can brains produce thoughts? If you, if you, if you say they can, you're a heretic. Brains cannot produce thoughts. 
because a thought as a mental entity can only arise from another mental entity. It's a, it's a very strict dualistic view. The way I resolved this for myself at that time, and again, a lot hung on this, for someone who was seeking to become a lama, a geshe, who would speak in public, who would have a public persona that stood for that tradition, I could not, without being a hypocrite, um, uh, pretend to believe things that in fact I could not. And my way of resolving this at that time, I would probably have been about 25 or 26 years old, was to opt for an agnostic position, to say, I don't know, that it's either beyond my capacity of understanding or it's something that I have not yet had sufficient experience or insight to be able to verify. Um, but it's also something for which I do not have sufficient evidence or um, a sufficient basis for, for taking on board and saying, yes, I believe that. So I, I opted for a position of holding it in a kind of limbo, not saying yes, but also, crucially, not saying no. If I had said, there is no rebirth, then in some ways I think that would have been as dogmatic as saying there is. And again, that has, at least superficially, a kind of Buddhist uh, flavor to it. It's a middle way position. I'm neither affirming nor negating. But it's also, to be honest, a fudge. It's, uh, it's not a position that I can hold anymore. Um, it's, uh, it's an inadequate basis, I think, for developing a coherent and, for me, an internally satisfying understanding of what it is the Buddha taught and how and what a Buddhist view of the world would be. So this brings us to... So that's the rebirth part of the problem. The other, side, the, the, the other problem in other words, the other metaphysical issue, is that of karma. Now, very often you hear the terms karma and rebirth being spoken of as though they were effectively one thing. Karma and re rebirth and karma, as though it's a kind of a single entity. But of course it's not. Uh, logically and doctrinally, these are two entirely separate ideas. And rebirth is, in some respects, um, necessary in traditional Buddhist thought because it provides a kind of vehicle, a medium, that can carry what they call the seeds or the potentialities of former acts into a future life. But there's nothing intrinsically um, necessary for these two ideas to go together. Now, the Buddha does seem to have accepted the broad theory of karma as presented in this way, but he also, when asked what karma was, he did a very typical move of his, and that is to somehow not deny or attempt to get rid of the term, but rather to give it another reading. In the same way, for example, he uses the word brahmin, the brahmin, which is you know, the priestly caste of ancient India, and instead of trying to sort of just deny that as having any validity, he says, no, the true Brahmin is the one who performs good acts and who is a noble person in his or her own right. That is what a Brahmin is, not someone who happens to have been born in a particular social caste. And he makes a similar shift with the idea of karma or karma. When asked what is karma, he fairly invariably replies, karma is chetana in Pali, which means intention. So he takes um, a common term that would have been used widely in India at the time and he gives it an entirely different meaning.
or let's say he focuses his attention on a particular aspect of what it means to act. And for him what was crucial was how actions are initiated by thoughts, by ideas, by choices, by motives. And the results of those choices, those decisions, can be observed both in the way they manifest as words or speech, the way they manifest as acts, and the way that those words and those acts have consequences both to oneself and, of course, to others other than oneself. So, although he doesn't abandon the traditional uh, view of karma, he clearly turns his audience's attention to something about karma that we ourselves can be conscious of, can be aware of, and can notice and experience the effects thereof. Of course, he also acknowledged that some of these effects would take place in future lives, but I feel quite strongly that his emphasis in so much of what he taught was to encourage a radically new way of being in the world, in this world, in the first instance. That is where his concern lay. So karma became something for him that we worked with as part of the process of our own coming to consciousness, coming to awareness, coming to a kind of moral and ethical being. So, in some respects, we see the Buddha trying to have it both ways, both to keep on board with the uh, people and the practitioners of his time, but also giving those ideas a fresh and new perspective and meaning. Now, I have no difficulty understanding and accepting karma in that way. And in fact, I find it quite um, easy to, uh, to accept the theory of karma as understood in that way, while leaving aside and being highly sceptical of the notion of rebirth and reincarnation. I can also have no difficulty in accepting that the effects of my karma will continue after my death. What I don't feel it necessary to believe in is some kind of metaphysical, spiritual, non-physical entity that acts as a kind of vehicle for this karma. I really see no need for that whatsoever. All of us have no doubt experienced many, many times how our lives have been influenced by the words and the actions of people other than ourselves. If we want to look back in history, we can even trace this back to formative figures in our culture, in our religion, a figure like Christ, for example, or Moses, or the Buddha if we're Buddhists, or we might say here in the United States, the founders, uh, the founding fathers who wrote the Constitution and the Bill of Rights and created the foundations for the kind of society we live in now. Their actions continue to reverberate and have effects down to the present moment and will continue to do so. The same way that the Buddha's actions, although he may not have anticipated in himself, continue to reverberate through time and space and lead us to what I'm saying now and what you're listening to now to puzzle over things that a man said two and a half thousand years ago. Now that to me is a very potent act that the Buddha committed in teaching the Dhamma and to me that's an extraordinary thing. I don't for a moment believe that anyone will be um, talking about what I've said or done in the year 4850, which is the same distance in the future as to the Buddha 
in the past, two and a half thousand years hence, will all be forgotten. I have very little doubt about that. And, but at the same time, I find it very um, inspiring, impressive, fairly inexplicable also, how certain figures at certain times in history unleash a chain of actions, of words, of acts that have the power to speak beyond the conditions of their time and place and continue to have relevance and meaning through subsequent generations in subsequent cultures that the initiator of those acts could not possibly have foreseen. In other words, there is a universality in the teaching of the Buddha as there is in the teaching of Christ that outlives their their, uh, immediate culture and their immediate environment. And that I, I find myself very humbled before such acts. So we can see that in history how the actions of others have had very significant effects on the quality of our lives here and now. And we can see it in the course of our own lifetime, the impact, for example, of our parents upon us, of our family, of our educators, our teachers, priests and rabbis that we may have been influenced by, friendships, perhaps, and I would imagine everyone in this room can think of at least one example Something we heard once, a phrase, maybe quite out of context, that came to us at a particular moment in our lives. We read it, or we overheard it, or it passed by on a radio show. And it somehow implanted itself in our minds. And it might even have had the effect of changing the course of our lives. That is the power of a word the power of an action and to me that's far more important to attend to than some hypothetical consequence in a hypothetical future life it also of course makes us aware of the responsibility the moral responsibility each one of us has in everything that we say in everything that we do, in everything we manifest in our lives, the way even we look at people, the way we dress, the kind of signals, the body language, everything that we put out into the world. We sometimes like to think of ourselves as somehow, you know, maybe very sort of quiet, introspective people who don't really engage much in social action or politics or anything like that. But we can never, um, in fact, separate what we do from the context in which we live. It's not a question of whether we choose to engage with the world. It's a question of how we choose to engage with the world. Even the person who withdraws into a cave on a hill is making a statement that is having an impact on others. He becomes the guy who goes up onto the mountain. And that can be very troubling for someone. It can be very inspiring for someone else. Even an antisocial, apparently antisocial action can have a profound social effect. And so it's here, I think, we need to consider karma. That actions will survive my death. Can I therefore aspire to living my life in such a way, hopefully a good way, that my values, what I believe in most deeply to be true and good, that these will be made present to others, to myself too, through what I say and through what I do, that will continue to reverberate into the future even if I drop dead tomorrow. And at one tomorrow I will drop dead that is a certainty but the continuity of my actions will go on if I fall dead tomorrow my books will be in the world 
all these tapes, all of the wise and silly things I've said to other people, all of the positive and negative effects I've had on others, will continue to play out their consequences. And it's here, I think, that we, that I at least, um, can quite happily dispense with the notion of rebirth and reincarnation without dispensing with the uh, understanding of how our actions will outlive us. And again, I think we have to see this both in personal terms, but also in collective terms. It's not what, just what I do in relation to a, another particular person, but it's also what I do as a participant in a particular society. If I buy into the consumer society, if I am an active participant in it, if I consume non-renewable fossil fuels, if I pollute the environment, um, quite unthinkingly, simply because that's what we do, perhaps what we somehow can hardly avoid doing in order to function economically in this world, I am also responsible for the consequences of that collusion and that complicity as well. So I would, rather than advance an agnostic Buddhism, as particularly one of my books has done, I would be much happier now to speak of the possibilities of a secular Buddhism. In other words, a Buddhism, a Buddhist theory, a Buddhist practice that has as its exclusive concern this world. And I don't mean this world just now, but this world as it will be until it becomes a red dwarf or whatever it happened to it in billions of years hence. As far as we know, this may be the only world like this that ever has been and ever will be. One of the great mythic moments in my lifetime has been the images of this planet from outer space. The sudden, highly visual and highly moving image of the fact that we are a tiny dot, a ball of rock and mud, hurtling around another ball of fire in a universe that appears to be profoundly and totally disinterested in our fate. Statistically, of course, it seems that the probability of life elsewhere is, is, very, is likely, but it's very possible. We'll never have any knowledge to confirm or refute that possibility. And particularly as we have become aware of the, of the origins of this world from the point 15 billion years ago when it suddenly exploded from a tiny singularity of space-time, whatever that is, into this universe of 100 billion galaxies with each galaxy containing 100 billion stars. And here are we, one of those planets circumambulating or circumnavigating this one sun. This is the world, this is the locus of our life, the life of those who will succeed us, the life that is sustained by this delicate ecological balance between the different uh, life forms within the biosphere. This is our world and this is our life. I personally believe that most metaphysical ideas we find in the religions of the world, the idea of God, the creator, or God as some kind of transcendental absolute reality, of um, future, um, of, of different realms of existence, of future lifetimes, of disincarnate spirits wandering around the world, that these are all human inventions. 
largely to try to understand and explain, particularly in pre-scientific times, how the world came to be the way it is and how it is that, for example, bad people end up happy and good people end up miserable. Again, this is an, an extremely complex and, and uh, difficult area to fully understand. But I would personally prefer to leave all of that in an agnostic limbo, although increasingly I feel even that is a bit of a, a fudge, because the challenge that we face morally and spiritually in this world today is one of such urgency, I would suggest, that we would only compromise our commitment to solving it were we to leave ourselves that convenient opt-out. In other words, well, if the world does go up in a nuclear holocaust or in catastrophic pollution and the consequences of that, it doesn't really matter. Because all living beings, all sentient beings on this earth will just then get reborn in some other place. I find it very difficult to understand how you can hold that worldview and at the same time consider yourself to be engaged totally with the problems and the sufferings of this world. I cannot see how that can be a total commitment. I feel that Buddhism as a tradition has an enormous wealth of wisdom, of understanding, of traditions, of practice and philosophy, of a moral depth and power that can contribute enormously to the sufferings of this world. And again, I want to emphasize not just now, here, in our lifetimes, but after our deaths, in all of the myriad lives of all of those myriad creatures who will follow us. So a secular Buddhism would be one that would focus uh, its wisdom, its compassion, its tolerance, its love, all of those qualities of which the Buddha spoke and embodied um, entirely to the issues that confront us both psychologically, socially, environmentally, politically, that take as the object of our compassion all beings who have emerged contingently from the causes and circumstances of this natural environment we call the world. So that's all I really have to say on, 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 on that particular uh, point. Um, it's something that I feel very passionately about uh, and something that my work, um, I think, especially in the last years, has been very much focused to trying to um, address inadequately, I personally feel. But I do feel that this is uh, a momentum or a movement that um, can bring our Buddhist beliefs and understandings and insights and feelings into hopefully a meaningful and even a transformative relationship with the world as it is now. I find it quite sad in a way that in our present times when so much, there is so much discourse about religion and its role in politics, for example, that the Buddhist voice never really seems to be heard. And unfortunately, the uh, discourse is being dominated by primarily uh, certain Christian and Islamic voices. Monotheism is kind of dominating the discourse in a way that uh, threatens to become almost all-inclusive. So I feel there is, even at that level, 
a challenge for those of us who affirm Buddhist values and the example of the Buddha to find a way through our practice and our lives to translate those felt values into forms of speech and action that can have a reverberative effect in the world with all of its suffering and all of its violence and all of its um, disputes that we witness today. And again, I find it very inspiring. That text I read out this morning, an example historically of the Buddha intervening in a political dispute in his own country. Can we find in our lives the wisdom and the compassion and the courage to give voice to those same values but in a language, in a form that addresses and speaks to the world of this time, of this contemporary situation? So let's stop here. I've given over the last uh, three quarters of an hour this afternoon to discussion, so there'll be plenty of time to, uh, to ask questions or make comments, whatever you wish. But I suggest for the next um, hour and a quarter, we divide our time between walking and sitting in silence. If you wish, pondering on points that have been raised, but trying to resist the temptation to spin out into speculative theorizing um, and to rather allow those thoughts, those ideas that might have been brought out in this talk to just rest with you, to somehow be a nurturing space for those ideas rather than you know, their foremost advocate and see what happens and see how they kind of distill out in the course of the next hour or so and again you might have found that by the quarter past four it's become a little clearer where the main focus of your, of your concern or your objections or whatever it is might be so we'll start by walking uh, until 3.30 and then we'll see So thank you very much for listening. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.